When you act in favor of gender equality, don't think you're just doing a favor to women. You're actually helping, really helping everybody. This is the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast, sharing thought-provoking content and discussions to enhance your leadership development journey. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of new episodes. Here are your hosts from the digital learning team at Crotonville, GE's Global Learning Institute. It's another episode of Brilliance Leadership Learning, and today we have Deborah Streeter, who is the Bruce F. Failing Senior Professor of Personal Enterprise and Small Business Management in the Department of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell. Entrepreneurship and small business management are what Dr. Streeter focuses on in her teaching, research, and outreach activities. And her research interests include university-wide models for teaching entrepreneurship, use of digital media in teaching, and gender issues in business and entrepreneurship, which is actually what the focus of our conversation will be today. She has two courses available in the online space with eCornell, the online branch of Cornell, and those are the Certificate for Women in Leadership and the Advanced Certificate for Women in Leadership. And Dr. Streeter has received acclaim as an educator based on her promotion of experiential learning, active learning, and innovative uses of technology both within and outside of the classroom. So that's really exciting for us to hear. We try to emulate that a lot at GE. So welcome, Deborah, to our podcast. So delighted to be with you. Thanks, Chantal. Absolutely. Since we do want to focus based on your eCornell courses, first and foremost, how do you recognize when there is a gender bias and when there isn't? Yeah, that's such a uh, that's such a complicated question in some ways. And the first thing I would like to do is, you know, these conversations about gender can be really tricky and put people in defensive modes. And so I want to distinguish a couple of things. One is conscious gender bias, and that's the kind of thing that we're seeing in the news about Uber and and also more recently in the venture capital community where there's really outright bias against women that's affecting you know their their activities unconscious bias is sort of the hidden thing that can keep women from achieving their goals and unconscious biases are held by everyone women and men so if we're going to solve the problem of these unconscious biases both men and women have to sort of educate themselves and start thinking about it. They're based on the underlying gender stereotypes that all of us have. You know, all of us have gender stereotypes that come from our socialization, that come from our families and our cultures. And, and you know, by the way, there are many layers of, of identity that each of us have. It's not just gender, it's race, ethnicity, differing abilities, orientation. Uh, we're going to focus on gender today, but I don't want to simplify to think that everything is only about gender. But we will talk a little bit about the gender side of it. Sure, of course. No, that, and that's a, a great point too. So when when a woman is in a situation where she's wondering, you know, <laughs> did something happen to me? Did this negative thing happen to me because I'm a woman? What do you, What would you say in that situation? Yeah, and maybe we could get even more specific of that. But the first thing I would say is I really think women should trust their gut. Typically, um, if if you're feeling something like that, there's some underlying thing that's happening that you're trying to sort out. It can be very hard, especially when you're not sure if it's mixed in with these other identity factors. Maybe it's because of age or, or race or something else. 
But I would say to start with the scenario you have in mind that you're like, wow, I think I just got either overrun or dismissed or uh, not listened to because of gender. Replay the scenario in your mind. Put a man in your position and see if you think the same experiences would happen with that person. Pick a man who's uh, you know, similar to you in rank and, and expertise and say, you know, would this have happened to that person? Then if you can say, you know, that could happen to anybody. You know, these things happen from time to time. But typically you'll say, you know, it wouldn't have gone down quite the same way. And then you have to start unwinding why it happened. Um, and we can we can talk about something more specific if that's helpful Yeah. So let's go ahead and give an example. So let's say you are in a meeting and you're saying something that seems to be ignored. And then a man says the same thing. Um, How would you deal with something like that? Uh, There are a couple of strategies for doing that, uh, for dealing with that. One would be to link yourself back into the conversation and say, yeah, Bob's follow on my comment made me think of yet another side of this issue. So you can do it yourself. Or if it's something that's happened to you repetitively, you probably need an ally in the room who can point back to the origin of your idea and draw you back into the conversation. Probably the most important thing is to ask yourself the question, why why do I care about this? Is it that I'm not getting ideas attributed to me. I'm not getting assignments because people don't think this project originated with my thinking. If that's true, you know, that's the time to take action. Sure. And so what, what are some suggestions that you might have to proceed with something like that? Because I know that that's, maybe there are women out there who are noticing those things and maybe they do that analysis in their head and they just don't know how to proceed. You know, I kind of hesitate to give extremely generic advice sure. on a podcast sure. because things are so specific to context. You might be in an environment, you know, let's say we look at environments that are highly masculinized on one end of the spectrum and all the way on the other end of the spectrum is transformational leadership, which is more about collaboration and openness. So it depends on what where you are in that range of things, right? And if you're in a highly masculinized context and you behave as a man would be, which would be you'd push back in some way. I'm not talking about a fist fight, (laughs) but I'm talking about pushing back verbally. Um, That's going to put you in violation with the gender stereotype that women and men have. This this goes back to this fundamental double bind. And I think that's what I'd like people to understand is that when you're in a leadership position and we're going to talk about leadership sort of broadly, like you're leading a project, you're leading um, a division, when you're leading an idea forward. When you're in a leadership position, you typically have to show both take care qualities and take charge qualities. Every good leader, this is what, what the research shows, is good leaders know how to take care and take charge, right? But when women take charge they're much more likely to get pushback from women and men because of this violation of the gender stereotype. And that's the environment in which you have to decide, you know, it's unfair. There's no getting around it. It's unfair 
But the situation is this. If you are finding that it's the situation is blocking the goals that you want to achieve, you've got to decide whether you want to make some adjustments. It might mean that you need to ramp up the take care side so that people are not threatened when you take charge. It might mean that you need to think about voice, intonation, and executive presence when you are taking charge, that you're being effective at the take charge side of it. And so that double bind that men really don't face, um, usually when men take care, especially women uh, are drawn to that, they, he, they get extra credit. But when women are, you know, in that take charge mode, and we've all experienced it, both men and women look at women and expect them to be nice, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but the problem is nice is not affiliated with power. So at times when you want to exert power, you've got to figure out how to do that very tricky navigation of the double bind. Right. Well, and so to your point about it not being our fault that we are perceived that way when we might behave the same way as a man or when we fall back into um, the trait that's expected of a woman, but then we lose our power. Um, I, I totally agree and appreciate that it, you still kind of have to be aware of those things in order to have impact. But I also, something I struggle with and that I'm curious as to your thoughts on is what can we do in parallel to help try to change that expectation or the response to those behaviors rather than kind of resorting ourselves to just dealing with it. Absolutely. So male and female leaders, they have a chance to have impact. What they can do is create a more of a culture, a team culture, where decisions and behaviors are less driven by these gender norms, where they look carefully at assignments and see, are women allocated to positions that don't tend to lead to other leadership positions. You know, and that's very context specific, but I'll say in some companies, you have to be in sales in order to get to the pre-C-suite or the C-suite. Others, it's operations. So if you're finding that, you know, if you're the leader, you can look at that distribution and say, you know, we're out of whack and you can make some changes for that. You can also educate yourself about what signals you're sending, because all of us, especially for women, we've, in, we've integrated these things into our own identities. And you have to realize, when am, I, when am I operating out of these unconscious biases towards other people or towards myself? You know, it's, it's, it has to do with the way that you give feedback, uh, the way you create conversations with your team. We have to make those changes. Now, there's a whole other layer of policy issues we haven't really talked about um, that can disadvantage women in, in different ways. So another aspect of the double bind is um, the idea that women have to meet a higher competence threshold. So that's the whole like dancing backwards in heels thing, mm. if you've heard that expression. I haven't, but I women, like it. <laughs> it's from uh, Fred Astaire. Oh, okay. And Ginger Rogers. She did everything he did, only backwards and in heels. Uh. And so, you know, it can be the case that women have to meet these higher bars. Um, and a leader can make sure that quantitatively you're looking at candidates in the same way. 
quantitatively and qualitatively. You're looking at candidates in the same way and that that doesn't happen. And that sometimes takes very active policy um, application. Um, and then recognize this trade-off between competency and likability. Um, so the leader can model a balance of those two things and help women also navigate that, either through direct mentoring or by helping them find mentors that can can see what some of their running into um, and help them strategize. At a very broad level, let's say higher up level, then you're talking about policies that more uh, predominantly affect women than men. That's flex time, maternity and paternity leaves, how work assignments, travel, all those kinds of things have been studied and there are some great suggestions made by an organization called Catalyst. And anyone who's in a leadership position should look at Catalyst reports because they spe- have some, some very specific suggestions on how to fix some of these policy level things. No, that's great. And I really like, too, that you mentioned the, the kind of like the self-talk because I do think that that's a a big deal. And, and again, having that person there, kind of a mentor, somebody even just to encourage and guide folks in the workplace on that balance, I think is really important. Yeah, it is. And you know, I I read a piece of research that really helped me think about things. Because I recognize that I receive feedback in a way that's different than my male colleagues. And I'm like, why is that? This research showed something that I thought was quite interesting. It showed that in elementary school, this is in the USA, right? So this may not relate to the global audience you have, but in the USA, if in kindergarten is sort of built around girls, little girls, and so boys get called out, admonished, yelled at, if you will, more often than girls, right? So boys have this experience of quote-unquote feedback from an early age, and because they get so much of it, they start sort of just not listening to it, and they start relying on their own evaluation of the situation. Hmm. Girls don't get it as often, and so they tend to respond in a kind of, I'll say more responsible way, in that their first thought is like, I wonder how I can fix this. I wonder what I did to create this, right? And I I thought about that. And of course, this is not going to be true for every single person. But I think in the large, it's how I see my students that um, men will tend to not listen and push back against feedback in a way that's different from the women that they teach. And I, I think some of this stuff is very rooted in us. So we have to think, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Of course, you want to listen to feedback. It's the way you grow and change. I wouldn't say we should be ignoring it. But realize that you know not everything is your responsibility. Sometimes you are in a really bad situation where it's not fair. When you get down to it, this is true for many of the women that have gone through the certificate program. The stories we hear are just downright unfair. And that is the environment they're stuck in, but they have to figure out like, okay, am I going to move to another environment or am I going to figure out how to operate in this environment? 
Yeah, and I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but when you mentioned the, you know, that study and the little boys getting the feedback more, mm-hmm. like, why is that? Did it point to why that was? Is it that boys are taught as children to experiment more? Maybe so they're getting you, know, they're getting into things more, and maybe we should make sure as parents that we encourage our little girls to do more of that or vice versa. I'm just, I'm curious about that. I'm going to go out on a limb and and say what I think it is. Um, Having both boys and girls in my uh, children, I have three millennials, so (laughs) uh, two boys and a girl. I think elementary school in particular, perhaps in part because most of the teachers are women, it's more built around a structured, quiet, concentrated environment in which developmentally boys at the same age tend to be more restless and active, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of what is going on there, that they're just getting called out more because, and so they get this perception of, well, I'm always getting yelled at, so mm-hmm. I, I, I can look past that. You know, I'm going to rely on my own sense of whatever justice. Sure. Uh, so, so it's more like, the the style of the education and not necessarily taking into account the different physiology or the mentalities of the the children between the you know the differences between a, a a male and a female at that stage. I do think there's some developmental differences um, that could contribute to it, and you know boys and girls develop in uneven patterns throughout time right. as they grow up. And sometimes school, the way school is structured fits, and sometimes it fits better or worse, you know. Um, but that's going way out beyond my expertise. Right. So. Yeah. No, sorry. I'll leave <laughs> Just... it at that. <laughs> um, yeah, but very, very interesting. I um, It's just good to hear those thoughts. It's, it's definitely worth thinking about. Um, okay. So let's, let's re let's recalibrate here. We'll go back to um, another question, kind of going back to what women can get used to in their workplace, um, or I I think probably in their personal life too. Uh, But specifically, I want to talk about negotiation. So in a negotiation, you know, we've seen or we've heard that women may need to learn to ask more. So on one side, what we're talking about previously is maybe women are being confident, but they're getting treated differently with how that confidence is manifesting and how others are reacting to it. But on the flip side, you know, what about, um, how do we get good at things like negotiation where maybe, and I know this is a generalization too, but maybe this is something that we need to learn to do more of. Yeah. And you know, what's ironic. Women are extremely good as a group. Women are extremely good at, at negotiating for anybody like their team, their kids, their spouse, their partner, whatever, except for them when it comes to themselves. Mm. That's where we really f- seem to fall apart. And if you ask they asked a bunch of people, uh, you know, what does negotiation feel like? The women were like, like going to the dentist for a root canal or something. <laughs> and the men were like, yeah, it's like going to a sports event, you know? Oh, wow. So there you start off with this dread of negotiation that women have. And part of it is because the, a lot of the models they see are really male models of negotiation, which we know if we think about double bind, are not going to be that effective for us, right? So one of the best uh, negotiations is a whole big area. We do both uh, beginning and advanced courses on this in the certificate programs. But I'll tell you the one 
um, I think real gem that I've learned that's that's really worked effectively. Um, a good friend of mine, J.C. Stivers, she's an, she's a highly successful commercial realtor in Florida. She taught me the asking questions method. So the way this works is, let's say you're in a salary negotiation. And I coach a lot of young women who are out for their first jobs. But this happens throughout your career that you're going to be offered a new position and there's going to tell you what the salary is. Women are, you know, are like deer in the headlights about saying anything. I'm afraid to ask for more. I'm like, don't ask for more. Just ask questions. So a question could be they make you an offer and you say, where does this fit among the offers that you've made um, in the last six months, year, whatever you want? You know, is it in like the top 25 percent, like the middle, the bottom, where would you say it falls? And almost always they're going to say something like, well, you know what? It's kind of in the middle. And then you ask the question, what does it take to get one of the offers that's in that top 25%? Hmm. Now you're putting them in a position of telling you how you can make a case for you to ask for a higher number. Because they could say something like, well, you know, typically that person has 10 to 15 years of experience. And then you might say to them, you know, I wonder if you took into consideration, I've been here for 10 years, but I had five years in the sales force before I came here, and I'm wondering how that's being considered, right? So maybe they'll say something like, uh, the person has uh, an advanced degree. And you might not be able to counter that, but now you know, like, wow, if I want to go to that level, I'm going to need to start doing my master's part-time or time. Right. Right. So asking those series of questions is peeling back what the other side is looking for and wanting. It's so much more comfortable because honestly, who's no one's going to withdraw an offer because you just asked a question. Mm -hmm. They can refuse to answer it, which tells you something. They can answer it, which tells you something. The other thing is to, to you can always ask for more time. If you're, um, depending on your personality type, you might not like to think quickly and respond so spontaneously. Mm -hmm. um, there's a wonderful young woman that I've uh, had as a student who's now successful. It, it works in New York, who has something she calls the pizza principle. And she, every time she goes out for a piece of pizza, she asks for a free piece. Hmm. She started this. I like this she already. Gonna, <laughs> yeah, she was going to be in sales, right? And so she started doing this because um, her name is Mikey Austin. She's actually I'm working on a book on this topic. But um, she, she assumed that she would hear no most of the time, all, mm -hmm. all the time. But sure enough, you know, some of the time she gets another piece, right? So it's a, it's a small example. It could be see, seen as trivial. But it's the practice of asking, just asking. You can ask and they can say no. And then you learn, you know, what, you know, what did it take? What, what was the difference between people who said yes and people who said no, right? And so in a work environment, you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to trivialize it. But you always have the right to ask questions. JC taught me that. And I think it's super powerful. Yeah, and it reminds me too of, um, or it, I think it's linked closely with something that I just recently read the other day from the uh, Inc. dot com magazine. 
um, or I guess the website is where I read it, but um, it was about, it was like saying something about the 90 second rule, which was all about listening. So I feel like this is saying the same thing in terms of when you're asking a question, it gives you the opportunity to listen and get a piece of information, which is a, a key part of what you were saying that I just like to call out because it still is strategic. It's not just that you're asking the question, you are listening for that piece of information, like you said, that you can then use, whether it's for your own, you know, information as to what you can do differently, or whether it's to kind of, um, you know, push back a little bit on what the other person is saying and pointing out that, hey, I've, I actually do meet this. How, you know, what, can we revisit that? So. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that listening side is so important. And as a group, and this is, again, it's not true of every female that, that you know, but as a group, we are actually better at listening. I mean, one of our socialization is to be a connector and to be a collaborator and get people to work together, um, that involves listening to, you know, different sides and figuring out how they can be aligned. I mean, you do it with your kids. You know, you figure out what your three-year-old is saying one thing, your five-year-old is saying another <laughs> thing. You figure out how can I align these self-interests. Um, so I, I think that's a great connection, Chantal. So speaking of the kids... Let's go into the conversation about work-life balance. Um, you know, that is something we do have to negotiate in our daily lives as well. Um, but in general, what are your thoughts on uh, something like, we hear work-life balance a lot, but I personally prefer the concept of the work-life flow where, uh, you know, there's, there are going to be some times where you're working more and there are going to be some times where you're lifing more. <laughs> and sometimes yeah. those don't always occur at the, at the traditional time. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I want to follow up on what you said about flow because what my observation, and this is just a personal observation, this is not based on research, I think the blurring of the line between work and personal life has been brought forward saying, oh, this is a great thing for women. My observation is that I think it makes it much harder for women unless you have the discipline to leave your cell phone at the mm -hmm. door when you go in to greet your kids, you are constantly on demand in both environments. So while you're at work, your kids can text you while you're at home, your boss can text you, right? And so I did not grow up, you know, I'm a baby boomer, so I did not grow up in, with the technology. And I've been watching the younger female faculty really struggle with it. And I don't think there's a solution because obviously the technology is only going to get more invasive, not less. But um, that's one thing that concerns me. There's a great book by Anne-Marie Slaughter that's called Unfinished Business. And she does such a good job of articulating what she calls the, the care issue. She's like, stop thinking about this as a woman's issue. This is about care. And it could be children. It could be aging parents. It could be a sibling that has a special disability. It could be, you know, somebody in your inner circle struggling with mental health, everybody has care issues in their lives. And the question is like, how do you negotiate this portfolio of the care issues with the other people in your lives? So I agree with you that it's a great segue from negotiation because it's negotiating at home as well as negotiating at work. It's still true that women do significantly more work at in housework and more childcare work. And, you know, it's not been true in my life. Uh, 
I don't know why <laughs> women don't ask their partners to uh, step up, but I will say as long as you have that imbalance, you really have a problem, right? Because somebody has to be the lead parent. I'm not saying that women should never be the lead parent, but it doesn't always have to be the lead parent. Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, her husband has also written extensively on this I- issue. And he's like, you know, being the lead parent doesn't require you to, to be a female. It requires you to have practice. So you just have to have practice knowing being the person gets called when the school calls or you have to be one that organizes lunches that that's not like a gender specific skill mm-hmm. it's just who's doing it the most gets better at it you know so i i don't i don't know what to say i like your idea about workflow i think it's important and i believe that the millennials and even those a little bit older than them are starting to think a little bit more strategically about their careers. And I, I'm not a big one for like 10 or 15 year plans, but you want to know like, what is most important for me to have joy in my work life? We spend most of our time at work, right? So what's important for me to have joy? Is it assignments? Is it achievement? Is it uh, the teamwork? Is it responsibility? And then what does it take? How do I navigate to that position? And then to do that, what kind of support system do I need to do my care activities? And not to mention all the other parts of life, which is your spiritual life and your sense of community and sports, whatever, self-care. There's so many pieces, right? All those pieces get put all the way on one side of the scale where we have work on the other side. Yeah, and I'm you're you're making the gears in my mind really turn and really like reflecting on my own behaviors in that space because I do think you are absolutely right as I look at myself and how I manage the flow that even though I may like I, I think I might be I don't know if confusing is the right word, but I might be overlapping some elements of flexibility with flow. And while I might prefer the flexibility to be able to work at hours where maybe it's not a traditional schedule and, you know, different things like that, it's still, I do find myself working a lot sometimes, <laughs> a lot more than than I probably should. And so if I consider that, um, you know, those are definitely two different things. Being flexible and and still having a balance, I think, is possible. Um, I, I just might need to think about that a little bit more, but it was very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it takes discipline to have a sense of when it's important to be all in at work mm-hmm. and all in at home. I just think it's, you know, for the first time now I have grandchildren, my grandkids are twin one-year-olds and being with them reminds me of how grounding it is to be with small children. Like you can't do anything else. All you can do is like, man, I cannot let these kids fail while they're in my care. So it's this very pure mandate, right? But that quickly goes away as soon as they get language and they can do other things. And so it's, it's all, each of us is navigating these two, these worlds and they're increasingly interconnected. And if, if you are, if you're doing it in a way that's more purposeful, I think it can be successful. I heard a great podcast, um, and I can look it up and give you the reference. 
that was about the difference for women between remorse and guilt. Remorse is, you know, I really wish I had seen my son's soccer game. That's something I want to make time for in the future. That's remorse. But guilt is the constant thing, like, because I wasn't there, I'm a terrible mother. Oh my gosh, you know, I'm putting too much time into my business. And that, um, that podcast narrator gave a really beautiful distinction between those two things that I think came from a Buddhist philosophy. But I thought that was helpful because it's okay and appropriate to have remorse about things because, you know, we're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. That's how we learn and grow as humans. But guilt is not that productive. It can be very narcissistic. You know, if you spend all your time feeling guilty about everything, you are, you're not presenting your best self. You're sort of stuck in behaviors. So I think some way for women to sort of figure out a way to, you know, make a path between those two things is really important. Yeah. And I just want to acknowledge too, what you said about the the purposeful bit, because I think another element that's just impacting and changing the way that we work today is the fact that we have more of kind of on this broader subject we're talking about, we have more entrepreneurs, we have more people who are doing their own businesses, and maybe their work is very closely tied to what they're passionate about, and what they feel their purpose is in their general life. And in that case, maybe that maybe that flow that I was mentioning, or those blurring of the lines is a little bit more natural, um, given that you still have that discipline. I, I do think the discipline is, is still a huge piece of it. Yeah, you know what you're saying? It's, it's funny, the baby boomers love to rant on millennials and their (laughs) need to have purpose. But I'm always looking at them and saying, first of all, I love the millennials because they're all around me and I teach them and they're amazing. But also we want the changes that they want. They want more flexibility. They don't see any reason you should stay sitting in front of a desk in an office for eight hours if you could do that work in less time and segment the productivity in other ways. They want more meaning connected to work. It's going to be a long time before the millennials are in charge. But um, even if the millennials are in charge of a new business, that business is still primarily controlled by the baby boomer population that funds it, right? So don't get tricked into thinking that entrepreneurial life is all about balance because it isn't. Right. But I do think over time, the millennial generation, if they can hang on to those desires that they have, I think it's going to be better for women because then it's like everybody asking for the same things. Good point. Yeah. I didn't think of it that way. Uh, so going, so going back then to the, um, you know, the differences in how men can support women, how, what, what are some ways that men can help? No, I think one of the most important things that that men can do is be a great role model for your sons and daughters. I think that's really important. In the workplace, um, being an ally or what we call a he for she, that means learning enough about unconscious bias that you see when it's impacting the women on your team and men. I mean, there are some unconscious biases against men as well, but be aware of them. So that if suddenly you see, wow, why do we have more men than women as, you know, beyond this certain level in our company? Just, it's not because women are grabbing their briefcases and going and, you know, freezing their eggs. I mean, that's a great story (laughs) the media likes to tell, but that does not explain. If you look at the data, 50% of the workforce at the entry level is female. By the time you get to the C-suite, it's 6%. 
like something else is happening Mm. along the way. At every level of leadership, women are not being tapped. And that's a great loss of human capital for the company. And, and, you know, the business case for gender diversity is really strong. Like boards that have women do better, companies that have diverse women, have women in leadership financially do better. I mean, you can make the business case for that. And as a male, you can make that so it doesn't always have to be the woman. I know I'm in an environment where there are many more men than women in my school. And I'm so relieved when a male will say, you know, everyone's talking about these two candidates as all things are equal, but everyone keeps coming back and saying, he just seems like a better fit. Can we dig into that more? Because maybe we're thinking he's a better fit because the last person in the job was a guy, right? So if a man brings that up, it's so much better than me being the constant voice of like, we have to think about the gender balance, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so men can help a lot. I think because men have more powerful positions than women, it's extremely important for them to be a sponsor, uh, a mentor. It's tricky for men to mentor women um, for all kinds of reasons, but I think it's important to tackle those challenges. Um And just when you act in favor of gender equality, don't think you're just doing a favor to women. You're actually helping, really helping everybody. Yeah. And to that point, kind of going back to why should men care about gender inequity in general? How does it matter to them in the long run of things? I mean, you mentioned uh, some of the business benefits, how there's, it just shows in the data that companies with uh, more women on the boards do better and those kinds of things. But on the individual level or the personal level, why should men care? Well, they all have women in their lives, right? It could be your mother, your sister, your cousin, your daughter, your, you know, your spouse. So do you really want your daughter to have fewer opportunities to achieve their dreams than, than the boys? I think my father changed tremendously. You know, he was born in the early 1900s and where I saw him really change when the whole affirmative action movement came about, he was in the insurance industry, was he looked, he's got two daughters who were very, you know, ambitious. And I think he saw in his own employees what was happening, that that we were going to face the same thing. So I think they should do it for business reasons, but I also think they should do it because they too are trapped you know, not that many men are at the extreme end of the masculine stereotype area. Many of them also hate negotiation. Many of them also don't like being abrasive, um, feel uncomfortable with what it takes to to sort of be that highly masculinized self. So to the extent we can figure out what the impact is of these biases, I think it's better for them too. Absolutely. I agree. So to, I guess, wrap everything up, maybe connect it all together, you've talked a little bit about, I think, emotional intelligence at the beginning. Uh, we've talked about negotiation. And so when we think about entrepreneurship as a whole, how are those things, the emotional intelligence negotiation and some of the other topics we've covered, why are those things especially important for entrepreneurs who are female? Because I know you mentioned, too, that it, it's not all rainbows and butterflies for entrepreneurs. So specifically a female entrepreneur. How, how are they impacted? Yeah, I think, so again, I'm going to say as a group, 
women, this is not every single woman, but as a group, women tend to have higher emotional intelligence. That's just a result of our socialization. It's not biology-based. It's, it's really socialization-based. But because we're, we grow up paying attention and trying to make connections, it's really powerful for us in looking at customers. There are two things that are important above everything else to an entrepreneur. One is the customer's value proposition, and the other thing is cash flow. So you have to understand cash flow. That's about finance. You can figure that one out. The people issues make or break young companies. So you'll hear this over and over again from the venture capital world that the team chemistry is everything. And I think if women can use that strength of being able to understand other people, they can more quickly get to the customer's sense of why their product or service matters. It's called the value proposition. And they're going to have to negotiate all the time. I mean, entrepreneurship is a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur because I want to I be my own boss and I don't like dealing with people. Well, forget about it. <laughs> it's all about people. You have, you know, you have your customers and you have your investors, you have your partners, your employers, your suppliers. You're surrounded by human beings all of whom you have to really understand and get to align with what you think is going to happen, what you want to have happen. So if the chemistry goes bad in that, even the best company can falter. And, you know, there's some good examples out there of that. I think um, the other thing I was going to bring up is Sally Cratchaw, who's the founder of Elevest, if you've heard of that company. Yeah, I have. Um, she says that there are some things that women really bring to the table in the entrepreneurial world that are important. She calls it healthy risk awareness. And that's important because a lot of people are like, women are more risk averse. So they can't be entrepreneurs. I'm like, no, they're really risk aware. You know, we are assigned the role of evaluating what are the risks for our family systems and how can we you know, short circuit them. And so we can bring that into the entrepreneurial setting. The ability to say things holistically is another one she points out. Our ability to focus on relationships and understand people. Um, the fact that we're socialized to have more long-term perspective. And startup life is just so full of short-term decisions that will have long-term implications. You really need that long-term perspective. And she goes on, you know, the drive for impact and for, uh, for impact and meaning is another thing we have, you know, that we talked a little bit about being in the millennials, but also women in general, you're, you're going to find among the women entrepreneurs that I've know, it tends to be more important to them that it's connected to something they care about. It's true of many men entrepreneurs as well, but for women impact and making meaning as well as making money really matters. Yeah, and so I have to tell a funny story about this because you're you're helping explain an interaction that I just had with my husband, which was we're we're starting to look for a house and uh, we're currently renting, and so we're starting to get more serious about this whole process. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how does this work? Because you can't really, it's like impossible to to make the timing where, you know, the lease is going to be up when you have to, and you give your notice, you know, you have a certain amount of time to give your notice for the lease. Um, but how do you know exactly for sure that the time you're going to close on the house and the move-in date and all that is going to fall in the same period? And I was just talking through with him what might be our best option in terms of avoiding the highest cost. You know, would it be better to <laughs> err on the side of being too early or err on the side of being too late? 
Right. And I kept trying to go through these options and he's like, he, I don't think he was really understanding my purpose and that drive, which exactly was being risk aware um, and the long-term influence because he's just like, what are you worried about? He's like, why, why is this such an important thing for you? And I'm like, I know it seems like a detail, but this is like why I'm thinking about this. And so what you just said is um, a perfect explanation for that whole conversation. Yeah, and remember, his socialization is to be, to make decisions and be what they call agentic, mm-hmm. like take action, make powerful decisions. It doesn't mean that they, you know, they're completely risk taking, but he's been socialized to, to make a decision and, you know, a lot of other things come into play here, personality type and, right. and other things. But I think that's a, that's a great anecdote. I really love this conversation. And I guess, is there anything additional that maybe we didn't cover that you would like to add in closing? I, I think the one thing I'd like to say, and I, this will probably come across as a plug for the certificate program, but women need some kind of private space to do exactly what you just did, which is to take some of these principles and ideas and apply it to their specific situation. And I think that's the advantage of doing it in an online setting as opposed to going to a big workshop where everyone's like, oh, yeah, Chantal's going off to a leadership workshop. I wonder what she's thinking about moving, you know. So I think one of the advantages, whether it's our program or another program online, I really encourage women to start educating themselves and having a place, a safe place to talk to other women who are not necessarily your own colleagues about some of these issues, because it's very tricky. You could be one of only a handful of women in a big pool of men. And then, you know, it's difficult because you don't want to, you know, thinking about what Sheryl Sandberg says is you don't want to leave before you leave, right? Mm -hmm. You don't, you want to lean in, not lean back, but you're, you're going to have these, you're going to have these moments where you are questioning it and like, you have to figure out how you're going to have those dialogues. So, yeah, I know that's great advice. And uh, for the GE folks, we do have a couple of eCornell courses on Brilliant You, so you can go ahead and take a look at those. For our external listeners who are not a part of GE, you can go directly to the eCornell website. We'll put that that URL in our show notes for you. And you can also feel free to connect with Deborah on LinkedIn under her name, Deborah Streeter. And Deborah, you also have a website at deborahstreeter.com slash soundadvice that folks can visit. Tell us a little bit about what that what's on that site. Yeah, I have a huge collection of digital video and I've taken some of the best of it and put it on this website. So I'll provide a link for that as well. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you very much again for your time. Um, I really love this conversation. So I appreciate having you on our podcast. I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and of course, like, comment, rate, and share. Thanks for listening.